week about my mentor, my first like real mentor, Butch, who uh, um, uh, was kind of like the guy who who got me started. Someday I'll tell you the story of how we met. Well, how we like met later. Today I'm actually going to tell you the story of how we met because this was years after I'd been kind of hanging out with their family and, and his two sons and and uh, my wife and I kind of uh, courted at their house and and hung out there for like the first two years of our marriage um, until we started popping kids out, you know, right and left. But um, it got harder to travel around. Um, no, uh, so we hung out with them all the time. And one day we're sitting around talking about um, when we were young, just telling stories about our past. And uh, I mentioned that I lived, you know, uh, grew up in Lansing, lived on Fairlane, and he was like, uh, really, we're out on Fairlane. And I was I kind of described, you know, up the hill. He's like, oh, man. I was like, hey, my grandparents lived on Valley Drive, like right down the, right around the corner. And, and he was like, really? He was like, like he's like, I spent most of my, like, uh, growing up years, childhood, at the corner of Valley Drive and Fairlane. And I was like, like, are you serious? Like, I know that corner. Like, I... I used to ride my bike around the block. I passed that corner like all the time. He was like, and I was like, in fact, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house um, when I was little. Like, you know, he was like, what year would that have been? And I was like, I don't know, born in 72, so maybe 76, 77-ish, you know? And, uh, and he was like, you're kidding me. Like, I was always on Valley Drive. During those years, I was like, "No way!" I was like, "That place was like awesome," but neither one of my grandparents could could always keep up with me, and so I had this little bike. They had kind of shotgun ranch where the front door and the back door lined up in the ranch, and I would sometimes get on the little their hill. The back door had a little bit of a hill, not much, but I would ride down, ride in the back door, ride out the front door, and like jump off the porch. And he was like, "I used to watch you do that." I was like, "You are kidding me." He's like, no, you were the jerk little kid that used to always ask me for a ride in my Camaro. I was like, that was you? I used to try to hold on to the back so you could pull me on my bike. He's like, I know, I was afraid I was going to kill you. Anyway, <laughs> like, he was like, I hated you. I hated you and everything in me. Yeah, so, kind of funny how the past works. You know, come to find out, um, Butch and I, who... You know, he played such an instrumental role in my life later. He knew me when I was like four and five, you know, and, and used to steal my, my grandpa. My grandpa had a wooden leg. He had diabetes. He didn't care for it very well. Lost his leg. And he used to sit in the front yard and, and like, take his leg off because it was uncomfortable. And I would steal it <laughs> and, like, sell it back to him. And he acted like it bugged him, but he was always, he gave me candy. We used to play go fish for candy, and he was diabetic, he had no business eating candy, and my grandma would come in furious, and she was like, Albert, you know better, and you shouldn't let him do it, and blah, 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 we'd both sit there all hang dog while she yelled at us, and she'd walk out of the room, and he'd go, I got another bag out of the bag, get under there and get that, <laughs> and I'd crawl under it. Uh, anyway, the past is funny, which is what we're talking about today. We're in week three of this year's Lent series titled Collide, and we've been talking about the way that Jesus kind of collides with different aspects of our lives um, when we choose to follow this Savior. Um, and of course, these collisions are the most natural thing in the world when we think about it, because this is supposed to be a relationship, not a religion. Following Jesus is supposed to be more of a relationship than anything else. And religions are clean and easy. Like religions, we understand. They have a set uh, rules and behaviors and traditions and liturgies, and we know exactly what we're signing up for when we get in. But relationships are messy. 
If you've been in a real relationship with a real person, you know how much uh, like a collision it really is. You sleep with a fan, but they like total silence. Your family has a traditional approach to Thanksgiving, and their family likes to do themed ethnic foods for Thanksgiving because they don't love Jesus. And you're a morning person, and they're a night owl, and you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle like a heathen, and they roll it up from the bottom. Or if you live in my house, you are used to using toothpaste with recognizable names like Crest and Aquafresh. And your spouse uses things with herbs and essential oils, and it tastes like salt and ash. Um, but, and of course, these are the little things, right? They don't really matter. Um, but weirdly enough, these are the type of things that a lot of marital fights happen over and start over. It's as if in real relationships, we don't merge as much as we just crash into each other and build something out of the wreckage. And I honestly believe that that same experience happens with Jesus, only it's not over toothpaste and Thanksgiving dinners. It's the very things that seem to be the center of our lives. We talked the first week about how Jesus collides with our sin by actually taking it upon himself. And how this is not only the true beauty of the gospel, if we want to be honest, it's the hardest part to actually grasp. That Jesus would forgive us and demand no penance other than our love for him and our faith that he really is that good. And believe it or not, as beneficial as this is for us, it's a hard pill to swallow. We feel like we have to earn some of it. We feel that, that at some level, there's a behavioral expectation for us to, to meet if we're really going to be loved like that. Unconditional love is hard to accept. We're taught to be transactional. And free is hard for our pride to allow. And Jesus absolutely crashes violently into that pride, and we're left with nothing but this beautiful grace to wrestle with. And then last week we talked about the way that Jesus collides with our influences. We're basically little more than really fancy biological computers. And whatever you program in is what you can expect out. Or if you like a first century metaphor better, whatever seed you put in the earth is the plant and fruit you can expect. So we talked about how Paul understood this, and he, he warned us about the types of people we tend to follow. He warned of the overly legalistic person who breaks everything down to rules and warns us also of the lawless who just chase their appetite and live for today. YOLO! If you follow those people, you don't get to Jesus. So Paul invites us to follow him as he follows Jesus. Again, this looks so much more like relationship than religion because it means we have to get to know Paul. We have to get to know Jesus. We have to do the type of things they would do and react the way they would react and love who they would love and live the way they lived. And this is so much more than just religion. Well, this week we are jumping into the middle of this really long discourse that Paul makes. I'm getting distracted listening to the kids. I love them. They have fun down there. This really long discourse that Paul makes to the Corinthians about how uh, the most basic behaviors um, can actually be more like idol worship. And it's, it's this really long speech he does. It's really fascinating discussion to unfold if you take your time with it. But this morning's message is just one piece of Paul's kind of supporting evidence. And honestly, it's a, it's a fascinating bit of theological work that, the, that scholars spend a lot of time on. 
So let's start uh, with the passage, and then we'll do the nerd work and, and move on from there. Uh, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to follow in your own Bible or app, otherwise the words will be on the screen. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were by, guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. That rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and indulging pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as, they, as many of them did, calling 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will allow the temptation to be more than, will not allow, that changes the meaning, will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, the part that biblical scholars really love um, right in the beginning is this part where it says, in the, in the cloud of the sea, all of them were baptized uh, as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. Uh, and they, they drank from the rock that was Christ. Before uh, we dive into this, we need to establish that this idea of water, them drinking this water, um, was a very, first, a very common first century metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Um, not only did the Old Testament often speak of God pouring out his spirit, um, like water. Um, but the New Testament authors pick up on this and they kind of run with it. Uh, we have things like, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. But the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he, uh, and when he said living water, this is like John's commentary, when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit uh, who would uh, be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So this, this metaphor of the water um, is, often refers to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, often, uh, is obviously referring to the same phenomenon when he talks to the woman at the well. And he says, up uh, from me come rivers of living water. Anybody that drinks it will never thirst again. And Paul obviously picks up on the same metaphor. And it's in this morning's book. Later, a couple chapters later, he says this. And by one spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into this one spirit. So this metaphor of water is one of the primary metaphors in Paul's day for the Holy Spirit. And drinking is kind of like receiving the Holy Spirit. When we look back on this passage where Paul is looking on an earlier passage, so we're looking back on Paul who's looking back on this passage in Moses, um, we, follow Paul, we find Paul making the, these dramatic parallels between the Christian life and the Jewish exodus story. He says, uh, you know, in the cloud uh, and the parting of the Red Sea, they were baptized, just like we're baptized. Uh, they feared starvation and were given manna, just like we eat 
bread at the Lord's table, um, the, uh, remembering Jesus' sacrifice. And just like uh, they feared dryness and, and God sent water out of a rock, he sends us the Holy Spirit for our part soul. So Paul's drawing these parallels between his life, um, the Jewish life in the Exodus, and the Christian life. And this is really normal for us. Like We are totally used to this. Um, in fact, this is basically the majority of my job as a preacher. Is I look for parallels between the people who lived with God in the scriptures, and, uh, and I try to find ways that their lives uh, and experiences might have some impact on our life and experiences and experience. But the reason that this passage is so fascinating to theologians and scholars is because as far as anyone can tell, this is where it started. Um, Paul, uh, this, this is the very first time any of the, the, the Bible writers uh, take a historical event in the Old Testament and they say, not only did that happen, but it happened as an example to shed more light on this future thing that was going to happen. Um, authors had referred to blatant prophecies and said, this is the fulfillment of that. That had happened before. Peter said, this is the prophecy in Joel where it says, I have pour out my spirit on all flesh. Like he, he claimed this is the time for that prophecy. But this is different. This is saying, this story that happened back then, nobody living through it would have known that it was about something else, but it was about something else. It's the first time that we know of that anybody had ever done anything like that. And, uh, and honestly, we've been doing it ever since, uh, which we call it uh, typology, if you want the fancy theological name. We call that type of interpretation typology, where we look at Things in the Old Testament, like now we say that Noah's Ark is like a type of Christ. If you were in the Ark, you were saved. If you were outside the Ark, you were not. So it becomes the, so we look at it and we, we find these, these parallels, these shadows. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, it's a normal way of interpreting scripture now. Um, and we feel it's okay to do that because Paul did it. Like, and if Paul did it in the scripture, we assume that's the way we're supposed to interpret the Old Testament. Which really shines a neat light on how important the, the New Testament author's job was, because um, by interpreting scripture for us in the pages of their writings, they're not only do we get their writings, we learn how to interpret the scripture. So we, we use their methods of interpretation not only, you know, in reading the writings, but then we take it and we use it to interpret their writings. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. That's just the nerdy part. Um, and this isn't even new, because in, in the Old Testament, Ezra kind of did it. Ezra was the very first um, Bible interpreter, if, uh, if you're ever playing Bible trivia. He's the very first Bible interpreter. All the people went into Egypt, or went into Babylonian captivity speaking Hebrew. They all came out speaking Aramaic. So Ezra stood up to read the word to the people, and he's now reading a Hebrew text to people who don't speak Hebrew. So he's got to be the first one to translate the text into Aramaic. Um, and what came out was still God's word. So that's one of the reasons we, we generally trust that whatever translation we wind up with, that God was a part of that process. We can trust the scripture even though it's been translated because it even happened in his word and God seemed to approve of it. And so we know that translating scripture is okay. We don't have to work in just the original text um, because Ezra did that. Anyway, so Peter, Paul, James, John, Jude, these New Testament authors, these guys were an example of how hermeneutics, that's the word, the, the art and science of interpreting scripture, um, how hermeneutics works in the New Testament. Um, so when we read their writings, we're not only reading what they wrote, we're learning how to handle the scripture, which is cool. 
Um, anyway, this passage is one of the passages where Paul first employs typological technique, um, which fascinates biblical scholars that he felt okay to do that. And now we just follow his example. Um, but having established this connection between the Red Sea, the manna, and the water, and the rock, to our experience of baptism and communion and the act of receiving the Holy Spirit, makes this passage really terrifying, honestly. Um, because Paul follows up this connection. Once he makes this connection, hey, they were baptized into Moses. They ate the spiritual food. They drank their water from the rock. And most of them died. Here's what he says. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as warnings to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated feasted, drink, and with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry and, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Uh, nor should we put Christ to the test as many of them did and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. So basically, Paul is saying this. If you think that you're saved and baptized and join communion with the people of God and you can do no wrong and no harm can come to you, guess what? They were baptized. They ate from heaven. They drank from the rock. And they still screwed up big time. It's a warning. It is a huge warning. And in its context of what Paul's talking about, because remember, this is only a single exhibit in a much bigger uh, discourse that, that Paul was, was in. It actually starts in the beginning of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians and goes all the way through chapter 10. It's 8, 9, and 10. It's three chapters long. In short, what's happening in this debate, in this discourse that Paul's happening, is they're arguing over the kind of meat a Christian could eat. Um, in the normal Roman marketplaces, uh, it was very typical to, when you would sacrifice an animal to eat, you would take certain parts of it, some fat, usually a, a kidney or something, and you would put them on the fire outside of the temple of a particular god, and you would sacrifice certain parts up to, to that deity. Um, and then that would kind of consecrate the entire animal to that deity. And then you would sell it accordingly. This, you know, my meat has been offered up to Dionysus or, or whatever. Um, and if you were a Roman citizen and you kind of had a patron god, which is the way they usually, like, you recognize all the gods, but you had one god you kind of made your sacrifice to. And it kind of depended on what you did and what your job was. You know, you found your kind of patron god. Um, well, you would like to buy meat that was offered up to your god, to your patron god, so that you're eating meat offered up to the one that you tend to, to serve. The problem was, uh, this, this was the, 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 you know, and the vendors would of course figure out which gods and demigods had the biggest followings in certain areas, so they would make sure their sacrifices also facilitated the selling of the most meat. You know, their economic system became built on it. Uh, and the problem is these brand new Christians lived in this society. They didn't live in America with a Christian heritage and mostly supportive, you know, laws and, and things. Uh, they lived in a world where nothing, no one wanted you to be Christian, and everything was bent against your faith. And so the question kept popping up, is it okay to buy meat that was offered up to an idol? Um, and some were like, hey, meat is meat, and an, an idol is just a carved rock. Who cares? Like, I like steak, so yes, I'm going to eat. Um, and others were like, but do I really want to give my money 
to a system that facilitates the worship of Ares or Diana or any other god that it was sacrificed to because I'm not only, you know, eating meat that was offered up, that's scary enough, but I'm also giving my money to that system and that's spooky. And this was a big thing. And both sides were really passionate about their position. And I, for me, I love that this argument is, is over something like meat offered up to idols. Because be honest with me, in this room right now, I need a literal survey. Who thinks that's a pretty silly argument? Come on. Yeah, it's like, it's an idol, right? Most of us feel like it's a pretty silly argument. I mean, of all the things for the Apostle Paul to use valuable papyrus to write three long chapters uh, to talk about who thinks which statue you make a perfunctory gesture toward before you cook your steak is important. Almost nobody today, right? It's silly. And that's why I love this. Because I would almost guarantee that the things that we think are all important and have to be fought over and have to split churches over and have to dislocate ourselves from people over look just as foolish to anybody outside the argument. Anybody who's not engaged in it, they're like, the things they fight over, oh my God. When you're not a Christian and you hear anything about the things that Christians fight over, it looks ridiculous. It looks like us imagining splitting a church over whether or not you can eat the meat that was kind of waved at a statue. Like That's how silly we often look in some of our fights, which is why I love that Paul spends three chapters on something silly, because we read it like, who cares? And we need to remember that feeling, because that's how most people feel about the things that we decide to fight over. It's silly, who cares? Paul engages in this debate, though, because it's important to the Corinthians. And his basic advice is challenging. He said, you need to give up your rights and think about the other person. If you don't like eating meat, fine, but don't judge other people that do. You don't have the right to judge them if they eat it. And if you like eating the meat, fine, but don't flog it in front of people. And if it comes down to meat or your brother, get rid of the meat. Your brother is far more important. And that's basically Paul said. And then, and that is one lesson that if the church could grab a hold of, like, if the person next to you wants to jump up and down during worship and wave their arms and dance, how does that bother you? Let them dance. Like, and if the person next to you just wants to stand and sing, you don't have to make them dance. Like, if we would, the, the fights we have are silly. Uh, Paul then goes on uh, this long rant about how much of his life hinges on the very idea of surrendering his rights for the good of others. He talks about how many things um, he, could, he could demand in his position as an apostle, how many, how many privileges that could be used on him, and he doesn't do any of that uh, because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block to those who might come to faith. And then, after doing that, after kind of laying out the problem, saying, hey, let people be. Let them be who they want to be. He's like, that's what I do. I could literally, I'm an apostle. I could walk in and demand all kinds of, I don't do it because I don't want my rights. I want what's good for everybody else. Then he dives into this example from the Exodus as if to tell the Corinthians just how serious this idea is. Uh, and it's as if he's saying, please don't think that you could just ignore the idea of looking beyond yourself to the bigger picture because this is game-changing. 
I'm an apostle. I shape my whole life around what helps the kingdom of God. And you guys are fighting over whether you can eat steak or not. And these people in the Exodus thought about themselves first. Their hunger first. Their thirst first. Their desires first. And they died there. They had a kingdom to advance. They had a promised land to storm. And they got caught up on food and drink and safety. And they died there. And before you hide behind the argument, yeah, but that was the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, they had a baptism. They had communion. They drank water from the rock and they died there. And then in a masterful move, if you're a master manipulator, I mean, teacher, like Paul, right after this morning's passage, he connects the whole idea of demanding our own way to actual, like, demon worship. It's kind of spooky. And he concludes the entire thesis with this. He says, so in whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul's three chapter proposition ultimately comes down to him saying, think bigger. There are bigger issues at play than just your happiness. Just before this, he actually says, hey, if you can eat it without hurting anyone, have at it. And if it bugs you to eat it, then don't feel pressured to. But the real issue is why? Why are you eating it? Is it because you can quote chapter and verse as to why you should be allowed? If so, that's not good enough. And if you're not eating it, why? Is it because of some code that you're afraid to break, you know, any little rule? If that's, if that's why, that's not good enough. If the question is not, how can I bring God the most glory? What would make God look the biggest? Because glory comes from the word kavod, which means heavy. When we say give God glory, we make God big, make him heavy. What would make God heavy? If those questions don't come into play in your mind, then you're missing the point. Whatever your debate you're having that you found yourself in, you're missing the point. It's about God's glory. And today's passage stands as this like stark warning in the midst of Paul's thesis uh, that, that I think is important to us. Because it confronts our hubris. Have you ever noticed how we tend to judge the past? Like, and that's actually like one of the biggest mantras today is that the past is evil, right? We're kind of rescripting the past to make sure that everybody knows the whole past is evil. The entire subject of history is being reduced to a giant power grab perpetrated by those who had the resources to pull off such a huge domination. All women from the past were obviously only in the position they were in because they were held subjected by laws and traditions and put in a place of dominance by men. That's the new narrative. Which just ignores the like billions of women who lived who were pretty fulfilled and happy. Not all of them, but a lot. And would have hated the idea of getting up and driving in rush hour traffic to go to work every day. And they're like, that's what you're selling me? No thanks. We never stop to wonder... Like, what are we losing in our progress? We look back to the way parents used to raise their kids, and we call it abuse. Except for the fact that, like, every statistic we have that measures mental health and general satisfaction and well-being, especially in the areas of feeling connected and rooted in something bigger than themselves, all of those stats are going the wrong direction. All of them. The more connected they get, the more disconnected they feel. And we do it theologically. 
you know how much hubris it takes to assume you're right theologically? Like, I mean, I have really strong opinions, personally. And obviously, I think I'm right. Because if I didn't, I would change my opinion. So, I mean, we, it's, like, it's like in the game. You have to think you're right, right? Or you wouldn't think that. So, of course, I think I'm right. But for me to assume that I'm the right one and someone else is wrong, especially in the areas that, that still have, like, the denominational differences that people still debate over on a, on a large scale... For me to assume that, that I chose all the right teams is to think that either Calvin or Soleto were, were wrong. One of those two were wrong. Either Luther or Ignatius of Loyola were wrong. Either Wesley or Whitfield were wrong. And though I do tend to choose my sides of each of those arguments, if I'm honest, I can't hold a candle to any one of those guys when it comes to deeply contemplating the scripture and articulating theology. Those were all brilliant dudes. These were some of the most astonishingly smart people in history, whichever theological camp they were in. And there were countless other brilliant men and women who weighed in on this long, great discussion of theology that we're a part of. And most of them disagreed with each other on some point or another. And I just happened to be the one that finally, finally got it all right. Really? <laughs> Not a chance. We look at history to judge all those unfortunate souls for getting it wrong when it's so obviously that I have finally figured out what God meant when he said all this. I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly arrogant person, but my hubris will not stretch that far. After 2,000 years, the reason real and deep debates still rage on some of these topics is because they're hard. They're <laughs> hard, complicated topics. The black and white ones, the, the, the ultimately essential things, the stuff that was pretty clear and clean cut, that was established 2,000 years ago and we really haven't thought about it since. And Jesus is the Son of God and he died for us and rose from the dead. Like, those things in the creeds that they locked up really early, those are the easy ones. The reason everything else is still fighting over it and the reason the smartest people who have ever lived fought and disagreed was because they're hard. They're hard topics. And there's good arguments on both sides. Otherwise, we'd lock it up. And I'm not willing to assume that I'm the one who finally got it right. But we tend to do that, right? For a group of believers to exclude another group because they fall on the wrong side of this debate or that debate is to assume that you're the group that finally got it figured out. And Paul seems to be saying, hey, remember that group of people way back when? who saw all these things with their own eyes. They were baptized. They ate from God's own hand. They watched water come out of dryness. Remember them? They missed it. And you really think you're so special? You really think you can't miss it? And Paul engages this debate that the church is having, and I'm sure it was deep, and I'm sure they quoted scripture on both sides, and and to defend what they believed, and I'm sure they were emotional, and I'm sure the people were polarized. And Paul says three things. Be willing to lay down your rightness, even if you're right. Be willing to accept that you may not be right, that you can mess up, because people have gotten it wrong before you. And above all, be willing to do whatever brings God the most glory. 
Descartes, you know, the great thinker, he had this, he, he did this doubt experiment, this thought experiment, where he tried to doubt everything that could possibly be doubted, and, and to see what he could come up with that could not be doubted. And he started, like, really, really, his, his first, he had three layers of doubt. His first layer of doubt was, if you've ever thought you were right, been 100% sure you were right, like known in your guts you were right, and then been proven wrong. Anybody ever done that? I don't care if it's which actor acted in a thing. You were like, I know I'm right. Get Google. because I. And then you get proved wrong, and you're like, shoot, I really thought that here. He's like, if you've ever felt that feeling, how can you ever feel confident that you're right again? Like, if you've ever been 100% sure you're right and you weren't, you need to take that into every other time you feel you're right. I could be wrong, because I, boy, that one time, I really thought that was, you know, such and such, whatever. His next love, you know, I don't need to get into Descartes, we'll never get out. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. No. <laughs> and, you know, Paul says all of this about this one particular debate about meat offered up to idols. But I think Paul would say the same thing about 90% of the stuff we, fall, we fight about and debate over. Now, for this morning's passage, and this entire three-chapter discourse, this morning's passage is about the past. So we've got this whole big argument. Paul takes this one section, which is what the lectionary gave us this week, and he talks about the past. He talks about Moses and what they did and how that impacts what we do. Paul brings up the past, and more specifically, the failures of the past, to make a point in his lecture. And this hit home for me this week because of the way that Esther and I tend to do Lent. Going into Lent every year, we kind of choose some level of soul work that we want to do together. Some years our family isn't in a good space, and so we really lean into spending family time together, and, and we commit to spend extra time praying for our kids and for each other. Oftentimes it's our communication or connection with each other, and, and so we feel like we need to for Lent, really lean into to talking more and spending more time together. Sometimes we're getting lax in some spiritual disciplines, and so we use Lent to lean into those. Whatever work we agree to do for Lent, um, my fast serves to keep me focused because I have a tendency to get distracted easily, um, if you haven't figured that out. Um, and so if I'm dealing with like a constant craving or a constant hunger, it's this like constant reminder, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be praying about this thing. I'm supposed to be spending time thinking about this thing. And so, um, so when I fast, it, it points me toward um, what soul work we're trying to do for those 46 days. And this year we decided that we needed to spend some time um, discussing and working through our past. Uh, if you were here the week Esther preached a few weeks ago, you might have picked up um, that she's kind of been facing her own past uh, in some pretty significant ways this year already. So we decided to kind of dive into that soul work together. Uh, and this week in the midst of one of our discussions, I bumped into um, the guy I used to be and kind of barely recognized him. Uh, and I make, made the joke last week that, you know, I know way less after 30 years of studying the scripture than I knew after three years of studying. Um, but that's not really a joke. Like, I was so cocky. It's uh, fresh out of Bible college. I thought I knew everything. I had no problem letting people know it. 
Um, I was abusive with my theology, divisive about how I thought it should be applied. Um, I genuinely thought I had the answer for the church, and if only pastors would come to me for advice, you know, we'd start to see Book of Acts type stuff happening again. And uh, and it was just all so clear to me that I couldn't figure out how no one else had had uh, studied the Bible as hard as I did. And yet, as you know, right as I was, I still made huge mistakes. In fact, let's use the real word, sins. Huge sins. I hurt my family, hurt my wife, hurt myself. And although I've repented of most of those sins and genuinely changed in a lot of ways, the effects of most of that sin is still with me. My family's different because of them. My finances are different because of them. My relationships and my impact is different because of them. We have this tendency to judge our sins in linear fashion. Like it's a checklist of things that we've done and we repent and we check them off. Clean, straight, I did it, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, move on. Have you ever noticed how we judge Adam and Eve's sin, not linear, but like by its impact? Because in linear fashion, eating the wrong fruits, eating something you were told not to eat, nothing. We all break that one in childhood like hundreds of times. Stay out of the cookies. Mom turns your back. Whatever. But the impact of Adam and Eve's sin is what we focus on, right? Huge impact. Introduce sin into the world impact. Like, big impact. And whether we like it or not, our sin is no different. Every time we sin, we introduce evil into the world again. And yes, often God is able to bring beauty from those ashes, but that doesn't mean the world isn't now different because of our behavior. This week I spent time thinking about the ways that my sins have reshaped my world. And it was painful. And even though I don't seem to make a lot of those same huge mistakes like I used to, for me to pretend like those things are all in the past is to completely misunderstand how the past works. Because although I may never do those things again, I can't change the way those shaped my current realities. The people of Israel made a decision to feast and drink and indulge in pagan revelry. They went to a party and things got too, went too far and they wind up worshiping a golden calf. Some jerk always brings a golden calf to the party. <laughs> and 1,500 years later, Paul is writing about how that shaped the story. The past is never dead. And, and if we don't face it head on and learn from it, it becomes our present and it shapes our future. And Paul is screaming out, look backward. Look at them. They blew it. And please, please, please don't think that you're better than they are. You can blow it just as easily. And that was maybe the toughest part of facing the old me this week is I know that as much as I have a hard time kind of relating to that guy anymore, I, it doesn't even seem like me when I look back. I can actually remember being in his head. And he wasn't evil. I wish I could say he was. That guy, that version of me, was trying to do the right thing. I was passionate about Jesus. I wanted to change the world on behalf of the kingdom of God. 
But two and a half years after Bible college, I listened to an audio Bible from Genesis to Revelation, straight through. It took me a little over two weeks to get through the whole Bible. I was laying carpet all day, so I was in a big empty place all by myself. Somebody bought me the audio Bible on cassette. King James Version, read by Alexander Scorby. And it came in like a suitcase. And I carried that thing everywhere with me. And I would throw it over my shoulder and carry my toolboxes, and I'd go and I had a Walkman for when I was driving, and I had when I was moving, and I had a boombox for when I was in the, on the job. And over the course of two and a half years, I listened to the Bible over 90 times, front to back, cover to cover. I still think it's a great way to learn the Scripture because you're, when we read it, our eyes tend to break it into verses, chapter verses, whether we like it or not, even though we know it wasn't written that way. It was written as an entire discourse. When you listen to it, that's how you get it. You don't even know that there's verses in there. You just get it as a whole. Anyway. I cared about people and causes, especially the lost. I was not evil. And if that guy could get it so wrong, make so many mistakes back in the mid-90s, and who do I think I am today to think I'm impervious to those same sins in 2022? See, the purpose of the past isn't to look back and confirm that how right we are. It's to look back humbly and realize how easy it is to get it wrong. And how often do we look back at the Israelites leaving Egypt amidst the most incredible miracles in history, the stuff that we would love to see, and then immediately complaining that they were in the wilderness and, and wishing they could go back to slavery because they're going to starve to death. And we, we click our tongues and we judge them. Look how fast they turned away from God. As if a highway through the sea wasn't enough for them. And we stand arrogantly on our side of history and judge. And Paul is saying, that is not the point. The point is to say, holy crap, if those guys who saw plagues and saw the pillar of cloud and fire and saw the sea part, if those guys could mess up, who in the world am I? I need to be humble. Because if those guys can blow it, I can definitely blow it. I need to humble myself and realize that I need to cling crazy tight to Jesus and the grace of God because if they fell, I know I can fall. If we don't take that heart that we can miss it, that we can mess up into every debate, every theological discussion, every decision we make, then we're missing one of the Bible's greatest gifts access to the past. Because if Luther was right, then Ignatius was wrong. And if Ignatian, and Ignatius was brilliant. And if Calvin was right, then Sanleto was wrong. And Sanleto was way smarter than I am. And if Whitfield was right, then Wesley was wrong. And I've read Wesley, and the man thought way more deeply than I do. And if I don't take those realities into every theological discussion, then I'm a fool. And likewise, if I don't look back at the old me, that 25-year-old me, that living example of hypocrisy and contradiction, and realize that, like it or not, I'm still that same guy, capable of all those same mistakes, then I won't continue to work my butt off 
to be better, to love better, to serve better, to chase after Jesus better, lest I grow complacent in the wilderness like the Israelites did. Paul ends this morning's passage with these beautiful words that we quote so often, as if he's sending this kind of banner of hope amidst this dire warning. The temptations in your life are no different than what others experienced. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. As much as we love to quote this verse all by itself, when you hold it in context, I love how it relates to the previous passage about the past. As if Paul is saying the past is this amazing, great tool against temptation. One of, one of the main ways out of a terrible temptation is to look backwards. Look at places where others have failed. And look at how others have, have gotten it right. We look backwards at times when we failed and, and times when we got it right. The ability to go, I don't really know what to do here, but I know when I went this way in the past, it didn't go in the right direction, so I'm not going to go that way. And there is your door out of temptation. Paul's begging the Corinthians to look back at the other followers of God, not judgmentally, but honestly, so that you can see how important it is to seek God's glory above all. Don't have this debate as if winning your side is the end all. Don't dive into this argument as though your side has to win. God's glory is what matters. Those guys back there in the wilderness missed it. And if we're smart, we learn from their mistake. The old saying goes, a smart man learns from his mistake, but a wise man learns from someone else's mistakes. Paul's begging us to be wise. How do we respond to this? Because I was struggling with this sermon and was like, how far into my own past to dive? Esther threw my own words back at me. She said, aren't you always telling people Lent's not supposed to be easy? And yes, Lent's supposed to be hard. Which is why I immediately love the idea of thinking about our spiritual lives as a series of collisions. And this week I love if we allow Jesus to collide with our past. Many of us don't like doing that. We don't like going back there because that stuff is ugly or painful or shameful. For me, there's very little pain in my past. I had a good upbringing. My parents didn't love me. We had our rough spots, but I always had everything I needed and I knew I was loved. Very little pain back there. I had it easy. But my past is full of shame. We had a lot of mistakes. There's a lot, of, a lot of things I'm embarrassed about. Remembering those things is not fun. And I wish I could hide the old, behind the old, like, yeah, but that was before I was a Christian. Not true in my case. Made plenty of big mistakes after that. For others, the past is full of pain. They didn't have it as easy as I did. They didn't, they didn't make the big sins like I did, but rather they were sinned against. And the past is no fun if that's you. It hurts to go back there. For others, the past is just confusing. You made mistakes, others made mistakes. You really don't know what you could have done different. Your life turned out okay anyway, so what's the point? 
And I get that. But Paul, that same Paul who last week invited us to follow him as he follows Jesus, often, often talked about his past. The good things, I was raised a Pharisee, I was raised in a good Jewish home, taught the scriptures young, blah, blah, blah. And the not so good things. I persecuted Christians. My own people, before I was a Christian, I persecuted them to death. Paul brought it up often. Keep the past, face the past as this treasure trove of good guidance and life and healing and it's all in our past. I believe Jesus wants to crash right into that past and help us sort through the wreckage. So the way that I would love to respond to this message this morning is to this week spend some time remembering Tell some stories. Write down some stories. Ask other people what they remember about your story. Go backwards for a week and meet Jesus there. Don't be judgmental. Don't pretend that you were this idiot back then and you'd never do those things again today. Don't do that. Paul would argue that you're just as capable of those things today. Go back and be honest. Don't be arrogant and assume that you were right it was the only thing I could have done back then. As if there was no other way to go. Just go back and ask God to show you what's there for you. Paul went all the way back to his cultural past. Made connections that no one had made before. Scholars still marvel at it. Who's to say if you go back into your past this week that God won't be able to do the same for you? 